This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Boston Public Schools are in transition. The school board is appointed by Mayor Marty Walsh, and he has asked Boston School Superintendent Tommy Chang uh, to step down. The mayor said in uh, the announcement that we need a long-term education leader with a proven record in management. Well, Chang has been in Boston for about three years. And there's been plenty of controversies in the meantime over opening of schools and transportation plans and perhaps uh, exam schools that are very popular here in uh, Boston will be shut down. And then the Boston Globe just ran a story uh, a week ago saying that school segregation is uh, more uh, intense today in Boston than ever before. So to find out more about the changes that are taking place in the Boston school system, I have with me today on the Education Exchange Steve Poftak, Executive Director of Harvard's Rappaport Institute for Greater Boston, who's a keen observer of the political scene in the hub city. Steve, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Happy to do it. Thanks for inviting me. So before turning to the Boston schools, I think our listeners would first like to learn a little bit about the Rappaport Institute here at the Harvard Kennedy School. Sure. The Rappaport uh, Institute for Greater Boston is based here at the Harvard Kennedy School. We're a Harvard-wide institution. Uh, our mission is to improve governance here in Greater Boston, and we do that a couple different ways. We have a summer fellows program. We had 24 fellows this summer, including, I believe, one or two with the Boston Public Schools. We also sponsor research, and we hold events on a variety of public policy topics. Well, I know you're uh, quite a presence on the Boston scene, but some of our audience is uh, nationwide, and um, so therefore may not have been uh, as familiar with Rappaport Institute as we all are here in Cambridge and, and Boston. So, Steve, what is the story behind the Chang resignation? There was always some kind of a story, and this was a pretty abrupt uh, decision. It, it felt pretty abrupt. Uh, however, I think it was, I think it was really a, an accumulation of events. I don't think there's one precipitating, you know, there was a decision made and therefore, um, I think this was something that had been building for a little while. I, I frankly chalk it up to there was sort of a lack of chemistry between kind of the two principals, between the mayor and the superintendent, that there was enough of a disconnect there that at some point, the mayor determined that he needed to go in a new direction. Um, you know, there were s there were a series of you know, sort of I don't you could call them scandals or you know sort of events that got a lot of publicity. There were a series of those, but I don't think that's unique to a, you know that's not unique to Boston. I think any big city superintendent is going to have areas of friction that uh, generate headlines in the newspaper. Um, but there was a, uh, something in the mayor's statement about management that may be a, a clue to his thinking. What, there what's is. the evidence that the superintendent was less than the perfect uh, There is, manager? and I, I think there, I, I mean, I think there may be some, um, some frustration that some of the initiatives are not rolling out as quickly as they had hoped, um, and I think they're looking for someone 
you know, there's a laundry list of things that are, you know, sort of in the queue for the Boston Public C Schools to accomplish. Can you tell accomplish. us what some of those uh, sure. items uh, are? Sure. There's a, you know, one of the mayor's, uh, one of the mayor's early, um, early promises regarding schools was a pretty extensive capital building plan. And they've done a lot of the background work on it. I believe it's Build BPS. Um, and we're still waiting. We're still waiting that to kind of reach full flower, to be fully rolled out. Um, there's the issue, you brought it up in your opening statement, uh, diversity levels at the exam schools, which is another issue uh, which has been uh, simmering for a long time, you know, sort of burst onto the scene maybe a year and a half ago. That's, that's still to be dealt with. We just had the recent uh, newspaper reports regarding the school assignment system. Um, they had put a new school a student assignment system in place. I think there's now some thinking around how do we, how do we make it better? How do we avoid some of these uh, side effects like the, the, the resegregation that's been recently reported on? So uh, the exam school question, uh, those exam schools are pretty popular with uh, parents, especially parents of uh, talented kids who are excited about the possibility of getting their children into one of the best schools in the city. Um, is that been an issue? Was that an issue that really um, the mayor didn't want to get himself involved in in that mess? I, I guess I would say it's a it, it's a first of all it's a the exam schools are very big in Boston. I think for for your national listeners, you know, there's exam schools in other places like New York City. The exam schools in Boston are huge relative to the rest of the system. They educate a quarter of the high school age children, uh, high school, high school age public school children in Boston. They're very large. That's um, an old, old tradition. It goes back a long time, I presume. It is. It um, one of the exam schools. I, my my Latin's rusty, rusty, but um, their motto is something roughly al along the lines of "We we were first. Um, as the first public school in the, in, in, in the country. Um, so it's a, you know, these schools are big. They're very competitive to get into. Um, I think there's starting to be some thinking around what's the best, what's the best way to admit students to these schools. Um, so I, you know, I look forward to, to being part of that conversation as it goes forward. The, the underlying issue being that the demographics of the exam schools look very different from the demographics of the city and the rest of the rest of the school system. And well, one of the things that I noticed uh, in looking at all the data was that uh, less than 15% of the students in the Boston school system are white. Is that, that's, am I correct? That's correct. That's correct. And that, that fact has also colored this debate about the, um, the, the concerns over the resegregation of the schools in that you don't, you have a system that is, has very, has a m very modest level of white students right now. Well, wh why is that? Why is the percentage white so low in Boston? I mean, the percentage white of the citizens of Boston must be considerably higher than that. Uh, it's a it's a bit higher, I think. Um, well, I think what you've seen. I mean, if we want to sort of roll back the clock all the way to 1974, when uh, court-ordered busing was initially put in place, you had a school system of roughly 95,000 kids, um, and I believe upwards of 66% of them were white. Uh, what happened then is you had a lot of white families that moved out of the cities or moved to alternative, alternative forms of education, be it private parochial charter. 
um, sort of in, in, in absolute numbers, the number of African-American kids in Boston public schools has been amazingly stable since 1974. It's roughly the same, literally, you know, almost literally the same number of kids. The number of Latino students has grown in absolute terms, as has the number of Asian students. So the Boston public schools is now at about 56,000. So the overall enrollment has fallen from 90,000 to 50,000. Roughly speaking. Roughly, yep. And uh, the percentage Asian, the percentage uh, Hispanic, just like everywhere else in the United States, has been on a steady increase. And the whites, well, there are fewer white children in general throughout the United States, and probably a lot of them are going to the suburbs for their children's education or probably to alternative schools, whether they're in a private. I mean, that was the trend over the long stretch of time. I, I, I'm not, I, I, I can't give you kind of a granular what's happened over the last five or 10 years, but over, you know, that stretch of time from 1974. Right. So, but if, if the white population is 15% or less, how are you ever going to integrate the schools? What does it mean to integrate the schools in Ooh, Boston? Well, there's does a couple different, a um, you know, the, the, there's a couple different dimensions to this discussion. I think one of the one of the real issues is there's a movement towards schools in closer proximity, and this is based on parental preference, which is is relatively stable across all demographic groups. However, there are areas, and it's and it's also popular with the budget office, right? They want to do less transportation of yeah, students. Yeah, I've heard that the transportation costs are remarkably high in Boston. What percentage of the budget goes to transport? About 10%. Uh, the Boston Public Schools spend about $100 million a year on a, and I, don't quote me on this, but it's you know roughly a billion dollar budget um, on transportation. That's scary. 50,000 students. Of course, it's more than 50,000 students because the transportation is for all children, right? Not just yes. public school children. So they are busing parochial, private, and charter school children as well. The other, the other thing I think this, $100 million is a big number, and everyone wants to chase it and say, oh, geez, you know, if we could only, if we only did X, Y, and Z, we, we, we could take that $100 million and plow it into the classroom. The reality of it is a that the, the number that you could actually plow into the classroom if you decided to stop busing children altogether is much more modest than that. It's probably somewhere closer to th the numbers I've seen are 35 to 37 million. You do a lot of, uh, particularly the, requir the requirements under special education law. Um, are well, that busing clear. is not going to go away. That busing is not going to go right. away. Right. And what people don't understand is that is, a lot of that busing is point to point. You have one student taking a vehicle to a specialized learning facility. That's obviously probably, you know, that's the most expensive encounter with transportation that the school system will have. That's very different than some of the other things. So the number is huge, and, you know, the number is eye-popping, no doubt. The ability to take that money and put it back into the classroom is actually much more limited than it first appears. So transportation... Uh uh, is a real challenge for any superintendent, and and there was, was an attempt by the superintendent to real, really deal with that, right? Both uh, coming up with a new design for the transportation system and, and changing the times that schools began in order to make it easier for kids to go to school at different times. So how did that all work out? Well, you've given a very succinct explanation, and now I will make it lengthy and complicated. Um, and 
you know, I, I should say the Rapport Institute was was really pleased to be part uh, partners with the Boston Public Schools on a transportation hackathon, where they took basically all the origin and destination pairs for all the students. Where do they live? Where do they need to go? And um, sort of put that data out there and put out a challenge to you know various college teams of students and academics to come up with an optimized system for busing. There was a team from MIT that won the hackathon. Um, they did put a lot of the, they put a lot of the ideas in place that the, uh, the team had come up with. They eliminated about 50 buses, which on a fleet of about, I want to say 600 to 650 buses is meaningful. Um, what the, it's not clear that it saved any money because costs have continued to rise Costs inexorably rise, so it may have personnel costs will rise if nothing else. Yes, is, and right. so it may be the case that you know the costs went up by five million, and if this intervention hadn't taken place, they would have gone up by twelve. It's it's it, it's difficult to disentangle, um, but it's it surely the eliminating those buses uh, surely had an impact, and I think um, I think was helpful to the to the transportation department and helpful at least in. Pushing down the cost of uh, or the, the the potential growth in transportation costs. The second piece of this optimization process was supposed to be a reallocation of bell times. Um, again, for listeners in other places, Boston Public Schools run rough in rough terms on three sets of bell times: seven thirty, eight thirty, and nine thirty, with concurrent dismissal times later in the day. Still staggered. The idea there is to maximize the number of runs that a bus can do. Potentially a bus could do three runs in the morning. Um, so by changing school start times, they're hoping to lower the number of buses. Um, again, I should say Rappaport wasn't quite as involved um, in this. And in the interest of full disclosure, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't initially um, sort of involved in great detail. However, when the school start times were actually published, um, I, my particular personal situation, I have several kids in the Boston Public Schools. Um, this was not going to be workable. Well, you put your, you put your uh, children where your, where your, uh, where your uh, mouth is, right? <laughs> and and that, that's to your great credit, Steve. I mean, there's well, a lot of people out there who, who don't do that. So that, that's well, admirable. Was, uh, that's well, very admirable. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, so there was, you know, basically the, the response to some of these changes in start times, uh, particularly, uh, again, not to wholly personalize the discussion, but, you know, my kid's school would have gone from 7.15 to 1.15, which was a significant change from 9.30 to 3.30. Um, so I was less pleased with this. There was a great hue and cry. Um, you know, we had, there were several contentious school committee meetings, and eventually the plan got pulled back. Um, at some point, they've talked about a series of, I, I think, more robust public engagements and then potentially revisiting this issue. Clearly, there's the ability, there's a real tension here between sort of what is the appropriate level of optimization and then what is just simply untenable uh, from a community standpoint. Well, you know, at Education Next, we have published pieces that say, oh, you should have start times later for adolescents because they like to sleep in the morning and they, they don't like to sleep at night. And so schools should accommodate the, uh, the basic uh, rhythms of life of, of the adolescents. So uh, was that part of the thinking in this? It, that was part of the policy that the school committee passed. And I think, by and large, if one examines the policy, the policy is quite reasonable. 
Um, it was more the um, certain pieces of the implementation struck many, including myself, as unreasonable. P part of it was to move the high school start times back later. Um, right now, the major, the largest schools are those three exam schools we talked about, and they start anywhere from eight, um, excuse me, seven forty to eight o'clock in the morning, which they're citywide schools. So therefore, you are you need to be transporting children quite early. A lot of kids on buses at six thirty in the morning. Um, one of the consequences of where these, that first of all, these schools are quite large. The largest one is Boston Latin School, 2,500 students, which is located in the Longwood neighborhood of Boston, which is the center of the healthcare and medical There's industry. There's no way in you can get through that part of town. It's, it's just a roadblock. I've tried sometimes. Yes. So it's one thing when you get the children there at roughly 7.15, um, when buses are dropping kids off at 7.15 in preparation for a 7.40 start in the day. If they're going to get there for an 8 o'clock or 8.30 start in the day, um, it's almost impossible to get, particularly if your goal is to be running vehicles on multiple shifts for multiple schools, there's no way that vehicle runs more than once, right, if it's dropping them off at, let's say, 8 o'clock in Longwood. So, so maybe maybe the superintendent should have asked these questions before uh, things rolled out. Is, is, is that is that the sort of the point? Is that he didn't think about these practical questions? He would he would he was good at the theory, but he wasn't particularly good at the practice. I don't. I, I, I do believe that there were folks within Boston Public Schools who were asking these questions. So I don't you know I don't necessarily think they weren't looking at them. They also did a fairly extensive public engagement process. And I think what my takeaway from that process was it matters how you ask the question. Uh, when you ask a parent to prioritize what did you choose in your parents, what do you choose in your child's school, I'm guessing most parents are going to talk about things like quality of teaching, quality, you know, safety, amenities in the building. They're going to talk about things like that. And school start time is probably low on the list because you sort of accept school start times as a given. But location is towards the top. People yes. do think a yeah. lot about how hard is it going to get be for me to get my child yes. to school. Yes. But when you look at the charts of what people want, school start time is very low. It's 11th or 12th on the list of attributes in terms of importance. When you ask the question, hey, do you mind if you're kids get out of school at 115 um, that's a different question right and you know sort of oh you know if you I got to be home by then if you're going to ask me that question <laughs> then I you know if all of a sudden I'm going to move it way up the list if you're going to ask it that way um, so I think that you know that may be one of the issues here is it's, it's, it's important how you ask the question well so one of the concerns that I've had about the Boston schools uh, recently is that after a period of time when I saw test score performance rising in the Boston system, they haven't been in the last um, few years. So, you know, the last four or five years on the National Assessment of Education Progress, you're seeing uh, declines in black and Hispanic performance. You may see some increases for Asians and whites, but, um, you know, the, the, the gaps are increasing. They're not closing. So quite apart from segregation in the school, is there, is there just, why aren't the Bostons, you've got all this talent in this city, in this metropolitan area, why isn't that talent being used to educate the students at the school? I think this issue of the achievement gap has been one that's been 
you know, vexing for everyone involved over a long period of time. And I know VPS has a number of initiatives um, where they're trying to address that. I think I think you have a, a, a bunch of different issues at work. Um, one, you have, you know, you sort of have, particularly at the high school level, you, you sort of have the exam schools and you have everyone else. Um, and all the other high schools, I think, are really struggling um, in terms of performance. And that's one of the things. There was a recently a, uh, there was a consulting study put out by the Parthenon Group that was foundation-funded but co-sponsored by BPS. And to their credit, uh, you know, they put it out, out there. And it's, it's really instructive to look at the gap in terms of proficiency, at least on the MCAS, our local assessment tool, um, the gap in MCAS is quite stark between the exam schools and all the other schools. So can you solve that problem by moving kids around, or do you have to solve that problem by getting better teachers into those classrooms? Um, what's being done at that level? I know we, the union is, wants to pay all teachers the same salary, no matter how effective they are, but I haven't seen the Boston School Board uh, pushing against that policy I mean, that's in, in Washington, D.C., Michelle Ree put into place a merit pay plan that's still in place 10 years later. And the performance of the students in D.C. has gone up quite dramatically. Black performance, Hispanic performance, white performance, all gone up quite dramatically. In Boston, you don't see anything like that. So why, isn't that the, why doesn't the school board really take a look at how could we compensate teachers? How could we recruit teachers that are, you know, as talented as the, as, as the graduates that are coming out of the universities in this area? I know that they've, they've done a, a great deal of work in terms of how they recruit teachers. Uh, and I think they've been very aggressive, uh, particularly about giving folks kind of alternative pathways into the system folks who want to do, there's a teacher residency program for people who want to do a mid-career switch into teaching. They've also been, I think, thoughtful and aggressive about trying to uh, recruit teachers of color uh, as well. Um, in terms of the, the ins and outs of the collective bargaining process, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not as well versed on the history of that. I know, I know that there was an interim agreement signed with the expectation that there would be a more fulsome negotiation this time so we will uh, you know we will surely see if they do anything different than kind of the the, the steps and lanes traditional um, traditional contract that you see in many places well I know it's not easy to get a teachers union to agree to these uh, kinds of changes but uh, I, I've been surprised at uh, there's not been as more of a more of an effort uh, in that in that in that area. But how are the resources for the Boston school system? We haven't talked about that very much. Uh, Boston is a wealthy place. Property values must be climbing. Um, is, is Boston one of those few places where they don't really have to worry about the resources needed to fund the schools? I think that surely depends on who you ask. Um, I certainly see it at the individual school level where the feeling is that they are taking a cut every year and that may be because your fixed costs in terms of labor and benefits are rising faster than anything else or faster than any increase in funding. Um, I also think, by and large, this state, and not unique, but this state um, 
the increase in healthcare costs over the last two decades have swamped basically any increase in education funding. So we are surely spending more on education, but we're spending a great deal of it providing health care, which at least to the teacher and the recipient feels like the same level of health care, right? I, I, I get health care through my employer here at Harvard. Um, I view it as I view it as kind of a un, you know a unit of health care, whereas the school probably says, geez, you know, we were paying, I don't know what the numbers are, but you know, $15,000 for this five years ago, and now we're paying $25,000 for it. Um, well, this is a nationwide problem. I mean, health costs are just absorbing more and more yeah. of the uh, gross national product, gross domestic pro product that's now 20%, and uh, everybody's feeling that, and state uh, budgets are feeling it, and uh, local school district budgets are feeling it. And, and you put that together with pensions and the growing number of people who live longer in life and therefore those pensions have to cover people for a longer period of time. Those two costs are, are not gonna stop going up. No, no, that's surely true. Um, the, the other piece, you know, sort of the other piece of the, the do we have enough resources question, I think it's, it's slightly more complicated in Boston as well because this is a school system that has shrunk tremendously over the last four decades. There, I think there is some ambiguity as to whether the physical plant that serves those students has shrunk commensurately. It's very, you know, it's, it's, it's tough stuff to close schools um, and to take under capacity buildings. There's been, I think, several attempts to measure, do we have adequate capacity or don't we have adequate capacity? The first one said, we have, way too much capacity and then the second one said well we're probably about right but a lot of the capacity is outdated um, so depending on depending on where the truth lies in that discussion you know we may be we may be spending money to sustain the wrong type of physical plant and the mayor to his credit has um, has plans in the works to address this but I think they're you know I think we'll um, we'll see the the, the, the speed with which they get rolled out. Well, when are we going to have a new superintendent to take Mr. Chang's place? That's unclear right now. We have an interim superintendent um, who's been appointed, and um, there, there has been discussion at school committee of a process to hire a new school superintendent, uh, but that process has not begun. One expects that that process would take, guessing, anywhere from 6 to 12 months. So we'll see if. So we're going to have an interim superintendent for a couple of years, probably, very likely, good yes, chance of it. And so uh, the interim superintendent, Laura Pirelli, has uh, just arrived on the scene. Uh, what do we know about her? Uh, she comes from an education related nonprofit. And um, she, I think, what I'm hopeful is that obviously she got appointed to the position by the mayor that she had, or pardon me, she. She was appointed by the school board, but um, it is clear to me that um, it's clear to me that um, you know obviously the mayor the the mayor was a participant uh, in this. Uh, you know. Well, that's a nice thing about an appointed school board. I've, I've I've often thought that cities would be much better off if they didn't have elected school boards, but appointed school boards and and Boston moved from an elected board to an appointed board, and that has drawn the mayor into the center of the discussion of education, which I think is exactly where the mayor should be. Um, so, what's your assessment? Is it a good thing that the mayor is engaged? I, th I do think it's a good thing that the mayor's been engaged, um, and I think Boston's history with an elected school board is quite a checkered one. 
Um, so I would put myself in the camp of generally in favor of the appointed school board. However, it is a it is a source of controversy, I would say, in many communities who feel that they are not being adequately represented by an unelected school school board. So it is, by and large, I think, a settled issue politically, but it does crop up uh, from time to time, folks calling for an elected school board. Well, Steve, this has been a totally uh, enlightening conversation about the, this period of transition in the Boston school system. I've been speaking with uh, Steve Poftak, who is the executive director of the Rappaport Institute for Greater Boston at the Harvard Kennedy School. Thank you, Steve, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time. Thank you for joining me.